0: Hello and a very warm welcome to the Professional Practice Podcasts. with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Architecture at Kingston School of Art. Today we're chatting with Charles Walker, Director at Zaha Hadid Architects. He joined in 2007 and has been responsible for a number of major commissions, including the Xi'an International Football Centre in China, Danyang Bridge and New Beijing Airport, uh, also in China, as well as the Mercury Tower in Malta and a number of others. A few things to talk about, including the crossover between architecture and engineering. But since it's Zaha's, we're going to look at the role of digital technology as well. So thank you very much indeed, Charles, for giving us the time to have this chat. Uh, Let me just first of all ask you about yourself, as we normally do with guests on here, just to kind of tell us about your education. Where did you study? What did you study?
1: Yeah, so I studied architecture at uh, University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. I I grew up in Toronto. And Waterloo was a very good school at that time. It had co-op work study program, so I was attracted to that. And it and it, we did the fourth year in Rome, which was uh, a big attraction. I graduated in '87. I mean, I always Waterloo, as you know, it's super strong on computer sciences. So I often uh, I often ended up taking computer science courses just to uh, as options, just to up my grade point average. I, I'd worked a few years while I was studying already. And then I sort of at the time Calatrava was very well known and I still had some misgivings about my skills and my education and so I decided to return and do postgraduate studies in structural engineering at Imperial College I did a, a 12 months taught MSc and then shortly after that I spent I spent the first significant part of my career working as a structural engineer at Atelier 1 and later at
0: Era. Let me just put yeah. So if somebody was to hold a gun to your head, Charles, and ask you, are you an engineer yep. or an architect? Where would you come down? Well, I'm, uh, you know,
1: I'm both. The, th- the thing is, That's I, what? like, That's, I actually, I knew, yeah, I, I just
0: knew you were going to do that. Yeah, Yeah. I actually Charles.
1: yeah, <laughs> no, but I would say, like, I consider engineering a specialism. Like, in a way, the architect deals with the broader project, he meets the client, he leads the design process, like he finds the competition brief, but the engineer comes in, well, you know, during the creative stages, but his role is quite confined, like the structural engineer only comes in when it's a real project, he only gets busy when it's a real project. And he's actually, once the structural frame is up, he's out. You know, he leaves the project. His job is over, and the architect stays there to see the the cladding, the interiors. You know, the project finished and delivered to the client. So I, I think it's a kind of narrower part of you know the the design of the built environment. It's a specialist discipline. Um, but that said, weirdly, as an engineer, you do spend more of your time designing than an architect, because an architect also does like planning permission, a lot of bureaucracy contracts, you know, handing over commissioning all sorts of things that, it, you know, structural engineer doesn't have to do. And secondly, most of what you work on as an engineer actually gets built, or a higher proportion of what you work on gets built. So weirdly, the, the 15 years I spent working in structural engineering, I got a pretty deep and broad experience working on a, a lot more projects than i otherwise would have touched as an architect and working with a, a lot more architect you know a lot more practices like i worked with many of the of the great contemporary practices
0: excellent excellent so, well, that's, that's a really good uh, intro in, in previous conversations before this interview charles you mentioned that reading secret gideon's uh, mechanization takes command was a kind of a formative moment for you so uh, what was that that book which i don't think that many people of maybe today's generation have have really picked up on but what what was it about that book sell it to them okay (laughs) Well, it's a great
1: book. I mean, he he describes it as an anonymous history. It's the history of technology broadly kind of researched through the patent office. It's organized in chapters like the the mechanization of various aspects of our life. So, for example, the mechanization of agriculture, which traces the history of like the the harvester reaper and the combine harvester and the death of the kind of homestead farm in America and the industrialization of farming, and then he, he goes to the mechanization of um, everything from bread baking to um, you know furniture manufacturing, locksmithing, lock making, and then right through the the mechanization of domestic chores, introduction of dishwashers and clothes washing machines, and so forth. And he basically explores in a holistic way the way this paradigm of mechanization transformed conditions of modern life and what its underlying qualities are, like discretizing tasks into separate parts, into, into specialist tasks. But in architecture, I mean, I suppose to an extent that would concern the discretization of building systems into their component parts, which was the, you know, the broad underlying paradigm of the British high-tech movement.
0: Yeah, Yeah, because you have to say Gideon's book, as far as I recall, it was not wasn't exactly a endorsement of progress, was it? I I took a quote out, which says he said, um, if I may read it to you, never has mankind possessed so many instruments for abolishing slavery, wage slavery, but the promises of a better life have not been kept. All we have to show so far is a rather disquieting inability to organize the world or even to organize ourselves.
1: Well, you know, that, that was controversial because, you know, with mechanization, we saw the death of craft, right? So, you know, the, the artisanal bread baker or the, um, or the craft-based furniture manufacturing, like the like the thonet chair or something like that, all being replaced with um, new materials and new techniques and new mechanical processes that, and, and, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright was also very critical of the machine. So, you know, the, these were the arguments of the day. But I think, I think what I took from that book is when I understood like the profound significance of how the mechanical paradigm had changed life, I, you know, then after that, I read uh, Marshall McLuhan, Understanding Media, you know, which talks, the he first quotes the term, the the global village and the medium is the message, you know, saying that actually the message is bound up with the medium through which it's it's conveyed. And then finally, digitalization. So what I kind of, I think the unwritten book and the book that I've wanted to write for many, many years, but I've never really come up with the perfect title for it, but it's kind of a digitalization takes command. It's about how digital technology has transformed conditions of contemporary life, which is absolutely true. Like, imagine if we had had COVID and lockdown before the internet, you know, the economy wouldn't have functioned at all.
0: But if, but if you were writing that book, would you then have um, allied the arrival and the extent of digitalization as an uh, as a definite boon? Or would you have recognized the death of craft, as you say, that Gideon had done, you know, the pros and cons from these things?
1: Yes. I think that the transformation from a pre-industrial society to, you know, industrialization or mechanization, that was more profound because it changed the way we make things. You know, we we shifted from, you know, artis- artisanal craft-based manufacturing of tiles, glass, brick, to towards industrial processes of steel frame, the float glass process from Pilkington, and so forth. So it completely changed the way we make things. Whereas digitalization is not so profound because digital di- the digital technology is. Inherently a communication technology, it has changed the way we make things because we can have CNC instruction, and the idea of standardization has changed. So now you can have, you know, a component that's topologically standard, but uh, you, you know you can manufacture it in a million variations, which is the, you know, the freeform architecture that we've been exploring in the last 15 years but you know ultimately that's just communicating instructions to a tool so digital technology in a sense it it didn't really destroy anything Uh, i think it kind of liberated us because it gave us a great new freedom to experiment and play
0: it's like an alvin toffler-esque uh yeah future shock or future benefit yeah it just
1: it I mean, the, you know, in a way, I have to say, Austin, like this—this this was my generation. You know, like IBM introduced the the PC in 1981. I mean, that's the year I graduated from high school. So, like, I've lived through this period, and I've I've practiced architecture through this period where the the microcomputer introduced was came into the small design office. It did change. It changed the way we draw, and now it changed. It's changed the way we model, the way we visualize. You know, you you might remember the old uh, watercolor render with his bow tie. He used to come in before the competition was submitted to do the watercolor renderings. You know, no, nothing like that today. We do these hyper realistic visualizations. Definitely, it's changed the way we practice, okay. how we and how we communicate our designs to the
0: world. Okay, okay. Um, I mean, maybe we'll maybe we'll round it. Depends how the conversation goes? But obviously, there is a sure. a broader conversation out there on AI and robotics. Um, which is partly Luddite and partly concerned about the impact of new technology and di- digitization yeah. on wage, whether you call it wage slavery or just wage employment. So, you know, it, it has it is having an effect. I, I'm all in favor of it, by the way, so don't don't get me wrong, but I'm just yeah. putting it out. But... Well,
1: in some ways, it's a very similar debate, isn't it, how AI is going to make jobs redundant. It's, it's not that dissimilar to how, you know, mechanization made craft-based jobs redundant to an extent. But I, th- I do I do think that AI will be more transformative than the uh, digital communication revolution that we've had in the last 20 years. Yeah. Okay. okay.
0: Um, let's just quickly, because you just, you did um, briefly mention it before coming to Zaha, you went, you've, you've been, you know, been around, haven't you? Charles, but yeah. you also went to the Advanced Geometry Unit at Arabs with Cecil Bauman. Ironically, yeah. I interviewed Cecil many, many years ago and he was telling me about the, um, the importance of the anonymity of the engineer. So what, what, yeah. did, you, what did you learn there? What... With Cecil?
1: Oh, I mean, he was a great um, mentor for me, I have to say. Um, I joined Arup in 98, which is actually the year that McNeil released Rhino in Beta. And Cecil had a way of combining, like he teamed me up with, he sort of put people on certain architectural accounts. So he teamed me up with UN Studio with Benven Berkel and Caroline Boss, And they were completely digital at that point. So we began this process of like emailing uh, Rhino sketch models. You know, that was pretty early, I have to say. Basically, the AGU, Cecil and I sort of co-founded that in 2000. And the intention was to develop that completely 3D way of working with other architectural practices across Europe. It was great fun. And it was very, I mean, the great, the most powerful thing was bringing these, um, the Rhino models into the structural analysis software that they were using at that time, which is uh, Oasis GSA. So we could analyze the structure, then animate the deflections. We could email back an AVI file for them to see how it was moving with the idea of a a much more intense interactive process becoming possible through this kind of way, new way of working. Yeah,
0: it's a very exciting time. absolutely. I think, I mean, it's it's worth reminding the listeners as well, you know, because there you are with the Advanced Geometry Unit. There I was in 1998 in a small practice in Newcastle where we used to have the dial up um, email um, and we would have it on for maybe five or 10 minutes. And then we'd quickly turn it off so we didn't spend it, uh, much money on the telephone bill. So that was, you know, that was the, the world for a lot of people. This is only twenty two years ago, isn't it? It's is a remarkable yeah. transformation that's occurred. Uh, and then some yeah. people had like you like your practices uh, in in the advance guard of that. It must be you know, been quite an exciting time. So f- from there to Zaha's, how did that move happen? You know, at the
1: Advanced Geometry Unit, we did the Serpentine several of the Serpentine Pavilion projects in the early days. So we actually there, we kind of acted as a executive architect, you know, for people like Toyo Ito. Like we we did all the drawings and supervised the construction and so forth. So the group kind of crossed over and, and it was very, it was a nice moment. There was about 20 of us, half architects, half engineers, all 3D literate. And um, we kind of developed into an architectural group. And that was, that's slightly incompatible with sitting inside Arup, right? Because, you know, they have one architectural franchise, which is associates, you know, I, that's, that's when I started looking around and Patrick actually called me. I was in St. Petersburg. We were doing a project there. And, um, you know, I I was, I was really happy. I hadn't met Zaha. I came in and met her. We got on really well. A few months later, I was working with uh, Patrick and Zaha.
0: The rest is history. Let me just go back a little bit in terms of some of the projects that you've, you've worked on. First of all, when you say you were all 3D literate at, at ATU, how did that come about? I mean, does that mean you were trained as part of, as you say, in Waterloo, and that you had that grounding, or were you taking evening classes, or were you self-teaching yourself amongst your you know, amongst your group? How what was that yeah. actually happening?
1: To be to be honest, I think it was mainly Rhino. You know, I had never really used AutoCAD. Actually, I, I was still drawing with uh, my Mayline ruler and my rotring pens yeah. on mylar. So I kind of skipped AutoCAD. And it went straight to 3D as a design tool, uh, rather than as a, as a, um, as a documentary documenting tool, everybody came from different backgrounds and had, had different skill sets. But I think Rhino was the door for so many people into, um, into 3d modeling, you know, because it was, it was so, um, intuitive, you know, it was so easy to pick up through the tutorials. And then in those days, when we were scripting, we actually used Excel to write scripts because, uh, You know that's all there was. So we used to cut and paste from Excel into Rhino, like concatenating the text, so that we could read it in as a data as a data file. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a nice moment because you sort of made your own tools to an extent. It is kind of a higher order of craftsmanship when you begin making your own tools, so that your work isn't conditioned by the tools that are available to you. You are actually much more in control of the work if you're making the tools that that design it and and we at that time we talked a lot about the reciprocal relationship between the design and the tool that scripted it you know you sort of are developing the two in parallel as the dot design develops and you want to change it you then have to modify the script or the tool I mean it's becoming incre- that that's standard now huh?
0: but at that time it was all pretty new you know the work that you do and the tools that you use how that's going to develop your approach to architecture or even architectural practice over those last 20 odd years? Personally, I see that
1: period as a kind of period of play, in a way, I would say. Like, I think the Serpentine Pavilions, there's something quite nice about those projects, because um, the Smithsons wrote a great essay called the, the Castle and the Pavilion, and they sort of said all architecture falls into one of these two categories. The castle is like a, a hospital or an airport. It's very programmatically intensive it's a long-term project it's it it uses heavy materials it's durable the pavilion is it's very light in terms of program you you know it's almost just just a a canopy you know Um, it's mainly used for entertainment it's fleeting it's usually temporary there was a period when we just played with material systems and compositional games and rules using computers scripts it was a lot of fun and and there was a great freedom that came from this introduction of three d modeling into the design office and I think people like myself and my generation we exploited that to the full you know through through patrick's influence, the interest in the parametric, and of course zaha's affinity for like oscar niemeyer you know that that play became a little bit more solid you know and it was it was but the same kind of um adventure and joy was put into, into, you know, larger projects which carry, I would say, right through to Dajing Airport. I I remember realizing, because when when I was at Atelier One, we did the um, Singapore Arts Centre, you know, the, they call it the Durian, those two spiky domes in Singapore, and that was built by Mero. And when Mero won the tender, you know, Max Mengeringhausen was the founder of Marrow, he developed that cannonball and they drilled eight holes into it to make a space frame and then bolted struts into that. But in the mid nineties, they wrote a proprietary computer program so that they could CNC cut every ball specifics to its location. And I suddenly realized that, you know, space frame was now like a pretzel. You could take a space frame and just bend it into kind of any, any amorphic shape that you wanted. You know, so we played with that stuff. I think we were the generation who experimented with that stuff to Brilliant. see what we could come up with. You know, the Hydra Cultural Center, that's a marrow space frame.
0: Uh, yeah. The, the, the hippie generation. You can't, you can't beat it, Charles. I was, I was there with you, but <laughs> less technologically adept, I'm afraid. Can I ask you about something I read in the Architects Journal, but you said to help distill and crystallize ideas within a team environment and enable complex, challenging projects, to come to fruition is really what you bring to a project. So It's always interested to see what that means in terms of your management style or how you actually put that into practice, helping distill and crystallize ideas within a team environment. It's obviously, it's, a, it's one of the most important and yeah. possibly most difficult tasks to do, especially if you have a team full of you know, yeah. individualists. So how do you do it?
1: Yes, absolutely. On, on most of the projects I've been involved in, well, very rarely have I had the Eureka moment myself. Well, the environment that I've worked in, there's loads of ideas, you know, and people are modeling and experimenting and testing stuff and putting forward ideas. I think the, the one of the essential qualities of our discipline is identifying a good idea, but n- not only a good idea, but I would say an applicable idea, because sometimes things are very clever and very inventive, but they just don't fit the brief or the context or the situation that you're in. So, you know, part of it is identifying those pieces, bringing them together and turning it into something that's applicable, deliverable, and ultimately has to be done within the client's budget and time schedule. So, you know, I I think that is the greater art of project direction. So I I I think the greater architectural skill is not having great ideas but it's identifying great ideas and then using them. I don't care where an idea comes from. I don't care about it. If it works and it's gonna do something great, I'm gonna use it, you know? So that's that's kind of my approach. Yeah, sometimes good. i have had the idea but
0: but, <laughs> but modesty forbid <laughs> uh, that's a very useful and a very um, uh, diplomatic uh, response thanks charles I, i'm just going to quickly go off slightly off beam because there is something which is happening at the moment which I, I wanted to ask you about with the building safety bill you know the, the um, aftermath of grenfell tower etc it actually talks about full digital documentation will have to be provided Uh, at the end of the job new uh, drawings and data sets and everything Mm. we're talking about design and tools and parametricism over here but do you actually implement all of this stuff in your practice at the moment and and what can smaller practices maybe learn learn from that what can they what can they anticipate as being a benefit coming from digitization of, of data
1: sure well i think you know we we do use bim but you know it's very rarely that you get a chance to do a full building information model with all the attributes of all the components that you use I think that's coming the software is it needs it's it needs a lot of development Um, it's not there yet I would say Um, for us some of our projects it's like kind of when we try and get them into Revit it's a little bit like trying to hammer a square a round peg through a square hole because we use many building you know we use many software platforms to build models and then getting them into Revit so they look like native Revit geometry is very, very hard. But I think that is coming. Like I think it just took longer than most of us expected. I think in the next 30 years, I suspect we will completely abandon 2D projections and, you know, the uh, the 3D model, the BIM model will become the deliverable, the document that we tender and a record document for the owner. And I think also, you know, uh, post-occupancy monitoring of buildings, energy use this will all become much more common probably broadening architectural services I mean also um google google maps now and uh, google earth you know we have street view google knows everything about the outside of buildings they don't know that much about the inside of buildings I mean people are now beginning to aggregate data on the inside of buildings you know so it's not inconceivable that in, in in future that data will beyond some form of public platform. So, you, you, you know, you could, you know, I think that's all happening and likely to be realized in the next 30 years, I would uh, guess.
0: Okay, 30 years. I mean, there's, there's a McKinsey report just out which says that construction, it, it's not. It's hardly an earth-shattering revelation that construction is one of the most under-digitized of all the major industries. Um, I just wondered why you thought that was. And since you've now given us a 30 year time scale, I thought you were going to give us maybe 10 years. But is it still the bow tie guy yeah. with the watercolors? Do they still exist and holding things back or is it cost? <laughs> or, or what is what is it? Yeah, I just think
1: it's a hard industry to change. You know, it's very, very con- there's a lot of risk in construction. It's it's a slow industry to change and there's the number of trades. Um, they all have to come along. So, you know, we've we've got digitalization on the shop floor. Like most glazing systems now are, you know, they're all they're all completely modeled in 3D and, and and digitally cut. But getting digital technique onto site, that's a bigger challenge. You know, and in a way, what might be part of the transformation could be robotics. You know, as we begin to experience robotics on site. I don't really mean like the Boston dynamics, big dog walking around the site. It's more, you know, robotics is beginning to impact areas of high risk where it's very dangerous to, for people to carry out a task. It, it tends to get robotics fit very well there. So like it's not unimaginable that a steel frame could be erected robotically um, using climbers and special robot tools that um, have the ability to assemble steel work. We've you know, you've seen Gramazio and, uh, the hmm. Grumati and Kohler, the robot arm that they okay. developed in the in the ETH in Zurich, yeah. laying bricks, um, and the ability of um, robots to work cooperatively, like these kind of swarm technologies, I think that could could have impact. That's why I use the thirty year um, timeline. It takes time for them to be proven.
0: Okay, no, um, that's, fair, that's fair No, I mean obviously the the construction industry is still, as you say, building buildings with one brick on top of another, with mortar in between, which we've been doing for 5,000 years. So uh, it'll take a while maybe to, to, to change that. But with typical Zaha Hadid modesty, I noticed that you said in the past that uh, the practice has, quote, developed in advance of the critical theory. Presumably we are getting too heavy-handed. What, what, where is the critical theory these days? And, and can you give us an example of how you are well, leading yeah. the charge?
1: I mean, I've I got in a lot of trouble for saying that. But I, I do stand by it. As I said, I feel that this, this generation, this 20-year period, was a period of play. Or, or at least that was my experience. And um, we, we used these tools to see what we could do with them. You know, industry was changing. Industry was digi- tooling up to produce things digitally using CNC instruction. I mean, I've always, I, I, sort of, I subscribe to zeitgeist theory creative individual is like a lens through which the light of culture is focused and you create something which has cultural resonance because it's of its time. It represents the time that it was created in. So I've always tried to produce, you know, contemporaneous um, ideas and contemporaneous designs that could not have been built by any other generation. But I mean, I'm an engineer, so I focused on technology you know, making something contemporary through the use of technology. But I do, I do feel that um, throughout most of that period, we were, we were still rooted in a kind of um, architectural theory, which had already been fixed in the late 1980s. So I, I see, I mean, I think things come in waves and the wave that I think I experienced through that portion of my career was this digital period of play.
0: Yeah, it may, Maybe it's because it was play. I haven't seen that many architectural um, philosophical theories develop in the last uh, 20 years or so. But but since you talk about play, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that that 20-year period of play encompassed the 2008-2009 major recession, and now we've got a situation of pandemic, of global shutdown, of depression uh, on the horizon, possibly. Mm. So, you, so you have this kind of idea of, um, the fantastic potential and advance and progress and you know, economic gains and productivity that these kind of processes may bring. The reality is that there's declining product- productivity, almost zero investment in some of these tools and a, and a certain precautionary risk averse attitude to the future. So in terms of zeitgeist, it'd be interesting to work out which, which zeit we, we are in at the moment. Uh, how do you, how, yeah. where do you see things going from here? I think that to an extent, like the bubble did burst,
1: you know, I, I beca- I also became quite acutely aware of, did my work have social purpose? You know, <laughs> you know, that, that uh, it's kind of like the party's over, you've had your fun, you know, now, now we, we need to do something for people, you know, I, I mean, I felt that and I wrote about that actually, you know, that's why we stopped doing the pavilions at the AA because um, they just were becoming a little bit less relevant perhaps, right? And you know, deeper concerns were coming to the fore, like uh, social concerns, environmental concerns. I think that's where we are now, right? So that moment of playing with digital technology, I do, I, yeah, I think it closed, and now we're looking to apply those technologies in a way that has greater social benefit and social purpose. And here, you know, here at Zaha, we're we are we're trying to work with new tech, like we're working with timber. We're also very focused on um, you know, low energy buildings. We tried to, to produce a zero energy building in Dubai. It's to keep the work relevant, right? You know, like the, the spotlight of Zeitgeist moves and what did me say? With infinite slowness, the great form arises, but you know, it's got infinite momentum. So
0: I'm with you, but I just wondered, you know, as it's speaking as an engineer, would you not say that part of your historic role is to improve efficiencies and to reduce waste and, and, and all the rest of it? Is that not how engineering has always kind of, you know, from Norman solid stone columns, because that's the material you had to hand to the most slender sure. of material yeah. today. Is that not, I mean, so environmentalism as an as a, ideology or as a thesis is over there, but is that not what was where we were going anyway?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, economy is a, is a is a central principle of engineering practice, but I, but I would say also uh, firmness, commodity, and delight. With the digital, we experimented in delight.
0: Um, we've, had, we've had too much delight, and, and
1: yeah, and now we need a bit more firmitas.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> give me delight any day. It's, it's, it comes in such too short order these days, as I'm afraid, in, in my life. Anyway, look, just to, to round up, I suppose, in terms of we we kind of, oh, I possibly touched on it a while ago when you were talking about digital technology as communication tools. There is that kind of conversation about cybernetics, about robotics, about AI, machine learning, blah, 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 all these immersive environments, smart cities. Um, I just wondered what place you see yourself in in there or, or, or Zaha's, or do you think, or is that a, a different, you know, a different world? Give us a, give us a glimpse of the, the future, short and long term if you.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, um, I, I do feel that AI will begin to impact the built environment. You know, the first examples will probably be pretty simple and straightforward. Like it just might involve, a, you know, AI is very good at processing big data sets and pattern recognition. So it might be something as simple as, um organizing traffic signals in a city so that the city's circulation works more effectively depending on you know the traffic the conditions the day of the week and ai would be working quietly in the background to constantly optimize that you know so i think that'll become part of our lives and will 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 in, will interact with it but but again i i do think more about systems operative systems rather than um the static part of, of, of the built environment.
0: Yeah, sorry. No, I'm only going to say, so in, in, instead of like things, the internet of things, you know, the traffic lights yes. being you kind know, of manipulated by robots or whatever it might be, or just by by sensory devices. In terms of the design to get to that stage, I mean, are, are you interested or involved or having thoughts about maybe how you can integrate some of these, you know, AI, AR, um devices within your working practices
1: we are but you have to find the opportunities do you know what i mean they're 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 not always there um i don't know i think that that could be yeah that could be the task for the next generation although although we've used um very new tools like cad 3d modeling scripting um cnc instruction in cutting on the shop floor and also that's impacted uh Logistics, component tracking, the organization of the site, and being to being able to assemble these things. Also, in structural analysis, being able to analyze nonlinear structures, highly redundant systems. That's all been important. But we we have still worked principally with the traditional components of a building. Yeah, I think that contemporary architectural practice hasn't really properly embraced. Building intelligence in any really meaningful way, I, I think it's very likely that architects could be involved in that. Exactly how? It's I, I can't see myself clearly what's coming. I was really interested when uh, I think it's Google bought uh, Nest. You know the uh, people who make the digital thermostat that you know goes into your, into your Wi-Fi, and their their interest wasn't so much um, the product but actually it was because Nest is a channel because you download an app onto your iPhone, right? So there's a client base. I think there's going to be new, new, new business models, new, new kind of um, tools and much, much more um, integrated products with, with deep, with built in intelligence, like uh, radiators, windows, components that could be, you know, a a, a a communication network or a system, but but that'll all come. Like, the, I think the industry will deliver that. I think architects will be the the they'll they'll remain like the ones who oversee developments in industry, and kind of the the, the good ones will integrate those technologies and what's available in appropriate way to create these um, contemporaneous designs that really resonate.
0: But, you know, yeah, but, but, but again,
1: be, I'm always talking about technology here. I'm no, afraid.
0: that's fine. That's that's fine. That's what you here, for, Charles. But I mean, but the thing is, is that yeah. while you are, I mean, it was it was an impossible question I asked you about you know what's going to happen in the future. But I appreciate that yeah. there's a direction, there's a direction of travel, and architects could be in a in a kind of central um, uh, ringmaster position in that. Yeah. Um, but that means that architects really have to pull their finger out and get up to speed with what's going on around them in the digital world, aren't they? So that,
1: yeah, that's true. But I mean, you know, there are many forms of practice, right? I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're very successful in China is China is a country right now. That's very keen and very excited to build their own future. You know, they're grabbing for the future, right? When I speak to um, Chinese delegations or clients, or I describe our practice as an early adopter practice because You know, Zaha was always, was also someone who very much wanted the future. She wanted the future now. She, she very much wanted to be in the avant garde, you know, to, or that's where she positioned her practice. And we, we inherit that legacy. So I think that's why we're very successful in China, because not all countries are trying to build the future right now. In fact, some of them are trying to build the past, right? So, or, or harking back towards the past. I think that's the same in practice. Like, you know, if you want to, I think there is an opportunity to be an early adopter. That's the way I positioned my career. Like at Waterloo I learned about, you know, th- 3D modeling very early. already in the early 1980s using a Tektronix workstation and you know saw the potential for that and then I followed the 3D tools as they developed. People who follow intelligent components and uh and smart technologies in the built environment, you you could uh fashion a a form of practice around that, without doubt. I think there's a lot of opportunity for that in the next 30 years, for sure.
0: Okay, they so could steal a march, at least on uh, on some the practices, which is always <laughs> good good competitive advantage. Look, Charles, uh, we have to call it a day, but that was terrific stuff. I'm I'm really really grateful to you for doing this with me. So thank you very much, Charles at Zahariad Architects. That's it for now, everyone. Please uh, visit the website or search Professional Practice podcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes. To listen to other experts on a range of topics or email me Austin Williams at Kingston.ac.uk if you want to find out more about our part three. Till the next time, thank you very much. Goodbye.